This is Resonance 104.4 FM. It's half past six and it's Monday. That means it's the bike show. Riding my bicycle. Riding my bicycle. Riding my bicycle. Riding my bicycle. So smooth. When I was nine years old, I had my bicycle. Now that I'm 31, I think it's just as fun. the bike show and this is the jelly dots they're a band from the united states of america and they um they tour on bikes apparently which is very noble as well as having written a song about bicycles i think they ought to come on the bike show so this is an open invitation to the jelly dots come come over come to london ride your bikes to london ride a pedalo across the atlantic and come and do a live session on the bike show or failing that we'll have you on the telephone for an interview. So were you riding on the London free wheel on Sunday? They closed off a lot of the roads in the centre of London to car traffic gave them over to bicycles. I didn't go myself, I had one or two things um, I had to do and then by the time I realised um, it was just about to end, uh, the weather had turned a bit grim. So, um, so next year, next year, one day I will make it out to a London freewheel, I promise. Riding my bicycle, riding my bicycle, riding my bicycle, riding my bicycle, so smooth, so loud. Uh, we're going to continue the theme uh, of. Uh, the last few weeks shows on the bike show, the touring theme. I've had a f- quite a few emails and quite a few comments on the blog, uh, www.thebikeshow.net, of people saying, God, it was really nice to hear Alistair Humphreys talking about his round-the-world expedition. That's got me thinking. I want to I, I feel the wind in my hair and the freedom of the road um, and, and also the sad news of Ian Heibel as well. I think a lot of people are thinking, hmm, yes, yes, touring, a, a grand adventure. Uh, 
Well, a grand adventure is a very commendable thing, but it's possible to have a mini adventure any night of the week. And it is September already. The nights are drawing in. Um, so if we are going to get anything of the Indian summer that we've been promised, I think the UK has been shortchanged as far as the weather's concerned this year. But um, if, if, if the weather is going to improve, it's going to improve over the next three or four weeks. And so this is the time to be heading out, sleeping under the canvas, under the stars, out on the bicycle, just a single night away. You can get back uh, in time for work the next day if you need to be back. It's a concept, the sub 24 hour overnight cycle camping trip, a concept originated by Grant Peterson of Rivendell Cycles. And you remember, I played a short clip of um, a conversation I had with him earlier in the summer. Well, here is Grant Peterson explaining the whole idea behind the sub 24 hour bicycle camping trip. I used to uh, do a lot of camping and climbing and backcountry skiing and I, I used to sleep in the woods and the mountains a lot uh, when I was in my late teens through, I don't know, about 30 or so and I'm 54 now. And um, then I got married and got a regular job and had children and I found that I, I didn't I didn't have time to do that. I couldn't take off for two weeks at a time or a month at a time or a month and a half at a time. I, I could just, I didn't have any time to do that. I, and yet I missed it. And um, so one night I grabbed a, my bike and a rucksack and it was, it was already dark out and it was after dinner. And I just, I told my wife and family, uh, that I was just going to sleep out in the in the hills uh, this night, and I'd be back in the morning. So I just I took off like that, and I went into some open space. I don't know whether it was well. In fact, actually, I do know it wasn't strictly legal to sleep there, but I wasn't going to leave any traces or anything. So I just I uh, rode my bike up into the hills and pushed it a little bit, and uh, found a nice spot with a view of the city, and I set up my little camp and I slept out and <laughs> I was back the next morning before anybody was up for breakfast. So you'd and, had a uh, sublime experience and they hadn't even noticed you'd gone? They hadn't even noticed I, I'd gone. I mean, I, I missed uh, an hour and a half or so of family time in the evening, but I was back before they, <laughs> before they were up. I was back at, you know, by 7.30 the next morning and they were still sacked out. And so, so what, what do you take with you when you go? Well, I take something to sleep on. There's a pad of some kind, a sleeping bag, usually a tent if I think there's going to be bugs or wind. And uh, if, it's, uh, if there's no threat of uh, setting the woods on fire, I take a stove and I, I, cook, up, uh, uh, I cook up a hot little dinner and a book and a headlight for reading. And uh, that's about it. Somehow, when I say it like that, it, it sounds like it's uh, quite a little, but <laughs> it ends up being anywhere between, say, 14 pounds, and uh, I've taken as much as 55 pounds just for an overnight. 
I don't need to take 55 pounds. That's ridiculous. But uh, when you're taking gear for other people who you know are going to be underprepared, you know, I've I've carried two tents and uh, two sleeping bags before and two stoves. And sometimes I, I go with friends and I know they're going to forget stuff. So I just I bring it and usually usually a good thing that I did and so your and so your friends who you've taken along or other people you've introduced to the idea of just nipping away for less than 24 hours overnight how have they taken to going well, uh, up into the hills yeah, like that it's, you? you know everybody who's gone on one likes it a lot now we have a regular group that you know we do we I say we do about one a week now at least you know with anywhere from two to six people but I think the the key is that it's less than a day. You know, we call them sub 24 hour overnights, but the reality is that they're usually sub 15 or sub 16 because we're it's only uh, it's anywhere from an hour to three hours, you know, from here at Rivendell to the campsite, and then usually it's it's a lot of climbing. And then the next morning, it's all downhill, and we're back in time. So if, if you're trying to make it two days, people aren't going to have time for that. There's always something to interfere with. But if it's less than 24 hours, they don't have much of an excuse. Typically, they'll say, yeah, I'll go. And then uh, the day comes up, and they say, well, I really can't. I really got to do this. But they can only do that three or four times before they start feeling kind of wimpy and then they go and then they like it and then they figure out that nothing bad is going to happen it's actually a lot of fun and they come back feeling a little bit more manly (laughs) and has it caught on outside your immediate circle of friends oh yeah yeah i get letters and photographs and emails from i'd say all over the country from people who say, sending me pictures of, of uh, these quick night outs that they've done with their friends and bikes. And when I say all over the country, I mean, you know, that's literally, but it's not in all 50 states or anything, but I, I bet I've gotten 30 or 40 of these emails in the past few years. So I know people are doing it regularly. I hear about it. You couldn't do it on any other vehicle really than a bicycle, could you? No, because you'd end up walking through the city with a rucksack on and then hiking up in the hills. I I guess you could do it, but, you know, it might be pushing the 24-hour limit a little bit. But a bike is ideal for it, you know, because the weight's carried or, you know. I mean, you don't even need a touring bike set up on it. You know, almost any bike can do, you know, put a small rack and a basket on or just tie stuff to the saddle and seat post and handlebars i mean you can a little bit of creativity goes a long way nobody has the excuse that i don't have a touring bike or i don't have enough racks or panniers you know you just saddlebags or just strapping things on or you know the other like last weekend omar just used a, a backpack you know maybe a 2300 cubic inch backpack and that was his pack and it may not be ideal for touring but the great thing about the 24 hour overnight is it doesn't have to be ideal all you got to do is put up with it for 
two or three or four hours, and anybody can do that. <laughs> in the Bay Area, you're blessed with lots of places to go. You know, it's quite hilly. You've got um, regional parks in abundance, as I remember, because I did live out there for a couple of years. But looking yeah. looking at a place like London, where you've got a real urban sprawl, every little bit of land is kind of used, unless you're, you know talking about sleeping out in the equivalent of Golden Gate Park, which is probably not wise. Right. You know, for a big urban area like New York or, or, or the Chicago area or London, what can be done? I guess that all depends on how, you know, I don't know what the laws are regarding open space there and, you know, whether you can camp overnight there. I don't want to send a, a bad message, you know, but I've probably gone on 85 of these in the past few years and all but one has been strictly illegal but there's a difference between illegal and certainly immoral and uh, <laughs> if there's open space and you know they they allow cows to roam and graze and poop and squat and everything and i think it's not strict it's not a pristine wilderness you know we aren't tramping down wildflowers or rare plants or anything like that. I mean, these are cattle grazing hills and regional parks made for hiking and they're well used, but they aren't well used at night and that's when we go. So we go out at night and find a spot that's not going to bother anyone and we aren't really going to be seen and just sort of pitch a little camp and really careful with fire <laughs> you know if the hills are brown we don't light a fire and we just use a little trangio stove and that's a little alcohol stove and those are pretty safe in any conditions but we're really careful you know we always leave places better than we left them so if you leave no trash and you pick up some and you fluff up the ground after you leave and nobody even knows well i don't have a problem with <laughs> with that it's nothing i'm too ashamed of it's yeah i mean it's it's just more the question of finding some open space really yeah. in the london area well, i mean that's that's the tough task and that's not know, filled but, with filled with kind of winos and you know <laughs> <laughs> thing is at night you don't need much you could find the places the area of, of a football field or you know less than that and as long as you aren't in anyone's way and you aren't in anyone's immediate backyard. It doesn't take much. I mean, a lot of times we've been half a mile from houses or, or even less than half a mile from houses. I don't know if that sounds like a long distance or a short distance in London. Maybe it sounds like a long way. But, uh, you know, once the sun goes down and the stars come out, <laughs> you know, you might as well be 15 miles away. And then, you know, once you're in your tent, you know, your world is even smaller. <laughs> well, that was Grant Peterson singing the praises of going out for the evening and camping overnight with all your stuff on a bicycle. And I have to say, I am a big fan of this. I went out for a night like that um, up to the Ridgeway with a friend of mine a couple of months ago. And uh, it was great. I mean, we had terrible weather. Um, but we did have a good time. And um, I'm casting around for people to send in their ideas for good places to go. And uh, Bill emailed um, saying that he knew where 
in the in, in the vicinity of London, a burnt-out shell of a Georgian mansion with intact garden follies, ice cellar, very atmospheric, um, with woods all around and plenty of wildlife and the odd World War II-era pillbox. So um, that's an interesting spot. I'm not going to tell you where it is, but uh, maybe we'll make a little investigation on the bike show. Also, Matt um, has found a place to camp down in Sussex near East Grinstead, which is kind of 32 miles each way. So that's a little bit far, I reckon. Maybe you might have to do a bit of training. Um, I mean, taking the train, not not training on the bike, um, to do that in the in the sort of time window that there is. I would love to go somewhere where you can watch aeroplanes land from a close distance or um, ships coming in down by Tilbury on the river. There's that Thames Gateway area that's all waiting to be built upon. Maybe it's our last chance to camp out under the stars in Joseph Conrad country. Um, How about it? An email from Daniel talking about a slightly more hardcore office-to-office weekend concept um, where basically you leave on a Friday night after work, disappear, only to return straight away to the office on a Monday morning, putting in as many cycling miles as possible over the weekend. He's done it a couple of times. The first one is London, New Haven, Dieppe, Caen, Cherbourg, Portsmouth, London. And then the other one, London, Basingstoke, Exeter, Penzance, London, although taking the train back from Penzance. Uh, yeah, that, that's a little bit extreme for me. But um, if that's what floats your boat, Daniel, then I won't argue with you. Um, so Grant Peterson, obviously better known for the beautiful bicycles that come out of the Rivendell Bicycle Works, all lugged steel, um, very much harking back to the classic era of uh, bicycle manufacturing. And another man who is harking back to the classic era of bicycle manufacturing is Rob Sargent. Um, who has set up what he describes as an anti-bike shop um, up in Finsbury Park. And uh, listeners have complained in the past that there's not enough coverage of cycling in the north. So I did make the trip up to North London, to Finsbury Park, um, in the hope of setting things right. Uh, I began by asking Rob what had driven him to open his own bicycle shop. I think it was a more fancy a change of lifestyle rather than the desire to open a bike shop. Uh, I want to do something f- uh, fulfilling with, with my hands and... Uh, um, what were you doing before? Taking pictures. I uh, spent, uh, I guess, a long time in, in studios, kind of stuck away in distant parts of the city and uh, fancied having something that's a bit more uh, a bit more public, really. So it's a little shop on a fairly quiet row of shops up here in North London, near Finsbury Park, really. Highbury, I suppose. And... Um, it doesn't look like any other bike shop that I know in London. No, it's uh, it's, it's trying to be a shop. Uh, it, I guess it's sort of finding its own place, really. Uh, it's something of a living room, uh, I guess, because it's it is in fact my living room uh, uh, and a workshop and uh, somewhere to show the bikes as well. Yeah. And what kind of bikes are you specialising in? Um, I, I guess what excites me is the uh, classic racing bikes from the, perhaps the, the mid-30s to about the uh, mid-90s uh, are steel bikes, essentially. Uh, I like the design, the character, the uh, history behind the frames and the builders, uh, and uh, they're nice and easy to work on uh, with, with them being steel. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a pleasure, really. So let's take a look at 
a few of the bikes here hanging on the ceiling. Can you talk us through the uh, handful that are up here? Hanging out there, we've got a, a, a Willia or Villia, depending how you want to pronounce it, uh, Trestina. Um, uh, late 60s uh, chrome frame with a, a copper lacquer, um, which is a bit of a nod to the way they used to make them um, in years gone by when they used to, in fact, copper plate the frames and then polish them up. All Campagnolo gear on it. Uh, uh, very nice bike, very pretty, a lot of Italian bling. Uh, I've got a scap in next to that, kind of mid 80s club racer, really. Uh, they have something about them, the Italian bikes that just feel so lively when you uh, when you jump on them. Uh, Brian Rourke, very nice English uh, English builder, uh, five through one competition tubing, very light. Again, all Campag gear. Um, yeah, and then a Harry Quinn, uh, another chrome frame, uh, late sixties, Liverpool builder. Um, something of a time trial kind of geometry on there. Uh, 50s Donacelli um, needs a bit of a little bit of restoration. That one, when I get round to it. Uh, on the floor, uh, some more English builders. Uh, an old Stevens from 1937. Uh, extraordinary light frame. Um, again, needs a rebuild. Uh, R.O. Harrison, um, beautiful lug work. Very nice geometry. Uh, a nice, uh, nice pattern to the paintwork. I always try and buy, buy in good and, and kind of restore what's there rather than get involved in respraying and kind of losing some of the character. So are you detecting a resurgence in interest in these kind of bikes? Because the, the trade of frame building, there used to be dozens of English frame building companies and now there's a handful. You could count them on the fingers of one hand. Is it a dying craft or or do you think it's entering into a period of resurgence? Um, I mean, it, it perhaps is. Uh, I, I guess uh, even a hand-built frame now, like, like you say, is, I, th- I think they, they, they say there's perhaps only one builder left in London, uh, Whitcomb's um, and then uh, Robertson Croydon. Uh, I think bikes are being produced so cheaply now uh, out of the country in places like China and Taiwan that... Uh, I don't think people are prepared to, to, to spend the money on a, on a hand-built frame anymore. It's a, uh, so whether the craftsmen will come back, I'm not sure. I guess it would be very exclusive if, uh, yeah, if, if it does come back and perhaps beyond most people's budget. But buying it second-hand is an alternative, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can pick up a, you know, a, a bike from me that's perhaps uh, completely rebuilt. Uh, it's going to last another 30 years and it's, it's, it'd be a handcrafted frame. That, uh, perhaps if you have it um, build up today might cost you upwards of a thousand pounds. Even how much would it cost from from you? Um, I, I guess a lot of the bikes are around about the five hundred mark. Yeah, which I think is uh, pretty affordable for most people, and uh, uh, you know offers them something that they can maintain and uh, and then and, and repair themselves. Even it is quite common to see people riding around London on vintage scooters, you know, Lambrettas and Vespers from the 50s and 60s, 70s. It's less common to see people on vintage bicycles. I mean, there are people riding around on old bicycles that just keep going, but as a kind of vintage market, do you see that growing? Um, Yeah, I think so. I think there are a lot more people involved in cycling now. Uh, I think the the whole fixed wheel thing's brought a lot of people into it, you know, albeit through fashion. 
and they're starting to appreciate what a good bike is uh, and how, how it responds, how it feels, uh, what is a quality bike and, and, and what lasts. So as well as bicycles, full made up bicycles, you've also got quite a few bits and bobs around the place. Is this a good place to come if people are looking for that particular part for their their own restoration? Um, it's always worth giving it a try. I, I can source things. I, I tend not to carry stock. Basically, I mean, there, there are so many variations, so many parts, so many periods that uh, I, I couldn't possibly uh, keep it all or, or afford to. But um, yeah, it's always worth dropping by and seeing if I can help. And uh, and perhaps I might know somebody that's got one. Or where do you find your parts and your bikes? Um, I guess a lot of it's internet based. Um, it's, uh, there's a lot out there. You can you know you can shop globally, and then it, uh, uh, bike jumbles, and, and just keeping your keeping your, your ear to the ground really. But now I, uh, I have a shop. I do tend to find people come by and have a chat, and they tell me there's something they've got lying in the shed or the basement or or something they um, they don't want anymore. I get quite a number of donations. Um, yeah, and they will get they will go to good use. Is it hard to sell them? Do you ever struggle when you buy something that you really like the look of to part with it? Yeah, that's a big problem. I mean, I, t- I, I often talk people out of buying a bike um, if, if I don't uh, if I don't want them to have it. Really, uh, I'll tend to buy things that aren't my size. Is uh, is the way I get around that? Um, if, if I forgot something's my size, then it's, it's very difficult to sell. Um, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I buy either side of my size, either too big or too small. And how have you been received by you know, people in the area, London cyclists? Has there been a lot of interest? Um, yeah, the, the local neighbourhood's really in, seems to be enjoying having me here. It's uh, it being something of a, uh, a different shop. It's on a little bit of a cycle route as well, so I get a people dropping in and uh, it would help them out with uh, punches or repairs or whatever and uh, there's a bit more of a personal touch I think I, I don't like going in bike shops myself and uh, so I don't see it as being a uh, it's an anti-bike shop really as opposed to a, uh, a bike shop you, know, you, you can't really buy anything and but you can have a chat and a cup of tea <laughs> tell a few stories we have a little uh, problem there with the uh, with the track which just seem to stop the interview with Rob Sargent about his anti-bike shop up there in Finsbury Park. Um, it's definitely worth popping in. This is a kind of bike shop that's basically the antithesis of Evans. This is a, a bike shop where it's complete chaos and filled with absolute beautiful things. And Rob is a very charming man. And uh, go up and buy one of his classic bicycles for a few hundred pounds. You can get a bit of cycling history and a bike that's a lot better than something that you'd You'd uh, buy down at Evans or Decathlon or or any of the uh, mainstream bike shops. Um, and you can reach him at 74 Mount Grove Road um, up there in Finsbury Park, London N5 2LT. And I'll put a couple of pictures on the website um, if you needed any further temptation. He, he is apparently going to produce a website at some point detailing the bikes that are for sale. But um, but he doesn't seem to have uh, done that as yet. And if he does, I'll I'll make sure... Um, I'll, I'll let you know. And, and if you're listening to this on the podcast, then through the magic of post-production, I will, um, I will complete that, uh, that interview. Um, so that if you do want to listen to The Bike Show, not on the FM, listen to the podcast, then it's really easy. Just go to www.thebikeshow.net and there's a couple of flags there that say podcast. And um, 
The Bike Show is in second place in the league of Resonance FM podcasts, uh, which is something of an achievement for a, a radio show about cycling. In first place, however, is the show that's coming up at seven o'clock in a matter of four minutes. Uh, One life left, according to the iTunes uh, chart. You are you're at the top. Are we? Yeah. Come on, one life left. Hello. How long is how long has your podcast been going for? Uh, this is our fourth season now, so um, I think we started in 2006. Um, so yeah, we've been uh, mounting a slow climb up the charts. And it's a show about computer games. Yes. Video games. Video games. Video games. What's computer the difference between a computer games. game and video games? Uh, video games sound cooler. Video games sound cooler. <laughs> okay. Well, we have something a little bit bicycle video game related in just a moment. But I just wanted to tease the show which is coming up for the next two weeks, which is a, a really brilliant thing. It's the sort of story of molten bicycles, the classic bicycles with small wheels uh, launched in the 1960s. And I'm going to be hearing from Dr. Alex Moulton himself, along with a bunch of molten riders and enthusiasts. Um, and here is Dr. Alex explaining why the molten is possibly the most cherished brand in the bicycling world. I think it can be explained by uh, what the Japanese introduced to me. They said it's a very interesting thing that if a creation of an artifact has been made uh, by uh, a lot of loving care, uh, probably led by one man, but uh, very much assisted by, by people who are devoted to it, it acquires a spirit. Tune in next week for the story of molten bicycles and my explanation of the spirit of molteneering. Uh, but before that, uh, this. Come on, one life left. I can't hear anything. How many will we name that in? How many what? How many, how many are we going to name that in? How are we going to name it in? Yeah, we'll name it in two words. Um, yeah, what is it? Paper. Boy. Good. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, I mean, that is the only game that I could think of that had bicycling, and I know you know a load more. Is it a good game? Paperboy's a classic, yeah, yeah it's absolutely. Great. It's great. Um, one of our correspondents, Andy Jenkinson, um, uh, sent a couple more in. Prop Cycle? Uh, no? Uh, Steve's never played that. that uh, actually, that comes with a comes with its own bike, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, Tour de France. Of course, Tour de France. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what's happening on One Life Left this week? Oh, it's very, very exciting. We've got news, we've got features, we've got reviews. We've got one uh, debuting feature, uh, which I won't give away the name of it. And uh, we've got a new song by the Do You Inverts. Cool. All right, well, this has been The Bike Show. Next up is One Life Left. <laughs> 